You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. The benefits of plants on our health and well-being as well as their environmental benefits are well documented. But did you know that we can harness the power of nature in our urban environments to create cleaner, greener cities? Michael Casey is the president of this episode's sponsor, the Australian Institute of Horticulture, and he runs a green infrastructure business called Evergreen Infrastructure. He's one of the most passionate horticulturists I've ever met and listens to the Plants Grow Here podcast during his morning walk. In fact, he's on the record saying that it's the best podcast of any category in the world. G'day, Michael. Welcome to the show, mate. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So, mate, can you please start us off by defining the term green infrastructure? Yeah, green infrastructure. It's the, uh, it's the multidisciplinary uh, profession that we're all talking about now, and hopefully we're going to see a lot more. But, look, I, I wrote an article not long ago, and I sat down and thought, how do I truly define green infrastructure? Um, and I found actually the CSIRO had a very good uh, definition. And look, it refers to all the vegetation that provides environmental, economic, social benefits, such as in clean air, water, climate regulation, food provision, erosion control, places for recreation, the list goes on. And, and, and it doesn't just stop there, though. The green infrastructure includes you know, urban parks and reserves, our wetlands and stream corridors and our street trees and, 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 and roadside verges. So it, you can see how quickly it, it encompasses a lot of our built environment. You know, we often think about green walls, green roofs, and it does. Green infrastructure covers them, but it, it's so much more than just them and, uh, and, and the tools that we have to, um, to design and, and implement green infrastructure is there. It's a, yeah, it's a very multidisciplinary industry. I see. So would you say that, uh, like I'm sitting here right now looking at my little ficus elastica in my little room here, is that green infrastructure? Look, it, it is. It, it, it's the introduction of plants into your environment, to your little built space. Um, I, I work a lot in greening offices, it's definitely schools. Schools is one of my, my, my fortes, I should say, on, on bringing green and nature into there. So, yeah, green infrastructure can be anything from potted plants and and uh, and beautifully laid out office spaces with, with green inclusion, um, whether it be a pot plant on your desk or numerous green walls and pot plants around your office or your, your living space. Yeah, I, I agree it is. Love it. So can you give us a few – so you sort of brought up a few examples there, but can we hear a few other examples of green infrastructure assets? Green infrastructure assets, well, look, we're hoping that there's going to be many, many more, but you've only got to look around the city and you've got to look at the way our cities are now so much concrete, bitumen, steel, hard infrastructure and, and our street trees, you know, they're living in very, very difficult, um, harsh environments to grow in. Now, the way we're starting to, uh, I guess, set up a lot of our street trees in in specialised growing um, pits, we could almost call them, inside um, inside the earth under the pavement, that's a form of green infrastructure. And that's a, that's a great asset our cities are now starting to get is more street trees and, and replacement of some of the ageing ones. Uh, our green roofs that are going onto some of our buildings, whether they be retrofitted 
or um, or built into a, a new construction, you know, the hospitality industry really got onto the green roof side. A lot of that was because they saw a, a value in placing another area on top of a building to be able to drink. But they included a lot of greenery. And I think our interior designers and our exterior designers really encompass that greenery. So, uh, yeah, there, look, there's numerous assets. To our open parks, our open spaces, uh, our micro parks, yeah, they're we're going to see a lot more, and I think the asset the asset list will be an absolute wonderful thing for our communities to benefit from. Absolutely. I mean, I think in 2022, I'm really happy to say that people are looking at plants as a must-have, not just a nice-to-have anymore. They are a, they are a must-have. I, you know, we can always refer back to COVID and our, our time locked up and spent away from nature. But I think there's always been that, that need, well, I don't think there, there has been that need for us to, to be around plants or nature just to be able to get out and have a walk in the park. Our, our lives have been too busy for too long. Uh, the students I deal with, and I know, I know that their needs, not just from an educational perspective, but also just from a therapeutic side where they need to be around nature to calm calm their nerves um calm their stresses that they're having and just allow them just to be kids you know i remember we used to grow up and play at the park or kick the football or play in the street and i just think a lot of these kids aren't having that opportunity anymore so we do we need to connect back to plants and we need to do it a lot more and a lot quicker so 2022 is let's call it the official start um but i really (laughs) really see it as as being you know, our next generation growing up with um, plants surrounding us and hopefully cities surrounding us too. I want to see green, green cities and a lot more of it. Absolutely agree. I think we're lucky to live in Melbourne. Out of all the cities in the world that we could be living in, Melbourne is really up there. But Michael, I want to move us on now to one of the biggest real advantages of having plants in our cities. So temperature reductions, can you tell us about how microclimates and plants can affect the ecology and even our moods and productivity? Like what sort of effects can temperature reductions from plants and trees, what can they bring us? Yeah, look, temperature, temperatures inside built cities is a tough one. We're, we're, like I said before, we're seeing cities that are, they are 95% hard uh, infrastructure, you know, impermeable surfaces, concrete bitumen, reflective glass, and and they're becoming heat sinks. And what I mean by that is they are just storing heat 24-7. So mm. the plants that are, are needing to be implemented into the gardens or the gardens that we've been given um, need to be hardier. They need to be tough. Look, plants are going to cool the environment, Um they are going to cool little areas. They are going to create little microclimates. And those little microclimates being a little bit cooler and probably more humid are going to invite the insects and the invertebrates and and and, the, and possibly even some of the, the animals that had left the city, mm. um, you know, giving birds a place to nest and lizards a place to run and hide and sit under logs. So they're going to do that more than they're going to do that with just built concrete bitumen around them. And you know what, more to the point, it's actually going to bring the humans out too. 
if we've got a very, very hot environment inside our cities uh, with no greenery, we're not going to have people come out and want to sit on a hot park bench with a hot bitumen surface under their feet, but they're going to do that if there's a plant or a garden or a tree shading them or, or providing that little bit more of a cooler uh, environment around them. So everything from air purification uh, or filtering, I should say, through to uh, cooling of, of localised areas, I think it's uh, I think it's very beneficial to have, uh, have plants in these uh, built environments to cool that area. Yeah. And more green walls, more green walls. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we were on a tour once, uh, um, a garden tour in Perth, and there was a small green wall. And someone said to me, but that won't be doing any benefit. And I said, no, it won't, other than encouraging other people to do it. So mm-hmm. the more people that then put green walls there, that ability to walk down that street, visually you feel cooler. Physically, you are a bit cooler because it's not getting that reflective surface. But, yeah, I think we've got to start somewhere, and I think the more people that get on board, the better this is going to be and the cooler our cities will be too. I completely agree. Now, let's put ourselves into the position of somebody walking through the city who would like to buy a coffee, right? Let's say there's one coffee shop that has a giant billboard on the wall and they have a giant umbrella for you to sit under, and the next cafe just 100 metres up the road has a giant tree to sit under, and a green wall. Michael, which one would you drink your coffee at? Well, firstly, being from Melbourne, I'd hope the coffee was good. Uh, secondly, <laughs> I would definitely walk to the one that's got the greenery. And, and the city of Melbourne are doing some fantastic work in greening laneways and greening the smaller streets, and they're doing just that. They're encouraging property owners and, and business owners to green their little space. Now, I just wrote an article for Hort Journal uh, based on green streets and and what's going on around the world. People are embracing it. The good thing is businesses are seeing it as a a potential uh, increase to their their patronage. So people are going to want to come to that really kind of nice green cafe, uh, like you said, sitting under a tree, not sitting there under a billboard that's probably trying to sell them something they don't want to buy. But, yeah, this is what we want, green streets, and and the more of them, the better. There's there's some classic examples from everywhere from Singapore to India all the way to Australia and Europe of just just that, those little niche little laneways that uh, are oozing with Mm. plant life. Yeah, they're fantastic. Michael, what would you say to someone who, let's say you're walking through a a rooftop garden or you're walking past a green wall or something and you know the person who you're walking with turns to you and says oh that's just greenwashing what would you say in response to that yeah i'd probably say to them if it was plastic yes i agree um <laughs> but i i want to see greenery anywhere i i'm not too phased if the cafe owner wanted to put a green wall up there for no other reason but just to attract some extra people into their cafe um, because, it, firstly, it gets people start to talk. Hey, how good's that greenery there? Or how good's that – How good? I love that plant or I used to grow that plant. I, I could do that at home. And and it, it might send on another message to people to then go and do the same or it might get them talking to the cafe owner and saying, hey, did you put this up for – uh, the reasons of cooling your building or uh, 
you know, having in a more relaxed environment and getting them thinking about maybe, oh, maybe this is working, I should put more. So though the greenwashing is a difficult one. I think it's going to hit us from a lot of big corporates um, who are all trying to send out really great marketing messages about, uh, you know, their, their, in, their environmental responsibilities is probably one way to put it. But I think any sort of green inclusion at the moment, I'm happy to see. Mm. So you're happy with it? Like, look, let's say more carbon goes into the into this particular green infrastructure or whatever, then we're going to get out of it. Actually, they're probably going to put a lot more carbon into, you know, a plastic alternative or something like that. So even if you're not having a net zero carbon effect or you're not sequestering carbon, there are way more benefits to plants than simply just carbon sequestration. Yeah, Daniel, you have hit on a big issue and that is just that. It's it's how much energy are we putting into a product and are we balancing it out with the the, the benefits of um I, I i was at the skyrise greening conference in singapore many years ago when they used to run them and there was a, an engineer talking about the the amount of work and materials that went in to build some of these um high rises just to accommodate green infrastructure now mm. you know do, do we need to add that up and, and, and say, hey, is there a balance? Because there's probably not. I think the amount of energy, concrete, steel, uh, labour that went into building that and the returns that that green is giving us, it, it may not balance out all the time. And that, that, that's a concern. But I think we get the message out that greenery needs to be implemented throughout our cities, however it can I think that's probably going to be the more beneficial. Hmm. It's a hard one. It is a hard one. Can you tell us about other environmental benefits that green infrastructure can bring? Like how can it help our soils? How can it filter stormwater drains? How can it aid city biodiversity? And sort of what other environmental benefits can we get that maybe are good for us but are really good for the planet as a whole? Yeah, the list goes on, doesn't it? Where do we start? You know, let's let's look at the unfortunate um, situations that have been happening in northern New South Wales and Queensland, or even Sydney, where the the excessive rainfall uh, has had nowhere to go. Um, you know, the cities are literally just capturing water, pushing it to the stormwater, stormwater out to the rivers, and. The rivers can't cope, and, and and what we're seeing then is is massive scale flooding. Now, I'm not saying green roofs are going to solve this, but geez, they're going to they're going to help. You know, if we can slow the water down captured on a roof that's going to the drains, there's one benefit ticked. Mm. Uh, whether or not we're creating uh, more retention and detention pits you know around our city streets you know rain gardens and you see a lot of them on our on our um, street verges where the the gutters are draining into um into rain gardens which is storing and holding a bit of the water before it does either infiltrate into the subsoil or move back into the drains um i know the melbourne water here are working on some projects of turning our big concrete uh, stormwater drains that you see running down that used to be creeks that were concreted over, they're turning them back into natural environments, natural creeks that are allowing for 
water to permeate back into the into the water table, but also just not having thousands, if not millions, of litres of stormwater pushing back out into areas that can't cope. So that's a big one. <laughs> and, Michael, some of that stormwater that's going into the stormwater drains, a lot of that's going to be full of, like, oil and petrochemicals and whoever spewed up on the pavement last night as well, right? It's going to, correct. Uh, look, if we let's start at ground level. Yes, it's going to have contaminants through it. Now, imagine that getting picked up going straight out to the rivers, straight out to the ocean, but just the mess that it's leaving on the way through. But take it Mm. back a step, we throw in a couple of rain gardens or filtration gardens or, you know, areas where it can just sit and let the plants filter out those those pollutants. Hey, we're starting to win, aren't we? You know, we we know Mm -hmm. our stormwater drains have to capture stormwater. We know. We have no other place to put it other than tanks and and other catchment areas, but that's not going to stop it. We need to filter it on its way through to its natural environment. And as I mentioned before, you know, the works that Melbourne Water are doing, and I know there's there's numerous other municipalities and states that are doing the same, but just turning these concrete water channels back into natural um, natural environments again to, to move water the way it was meant to do. Singapore have done some fantastic work with it and a lot of the Southeast Asian countries are doing it. So it's great. It, it, yeah, it, it's exciting with the, the, the stuff that we're doing. It's great. Now, oh, sorry, actually, I do, I do, do have one more. Let's now go to the roof um, and talk about water quality. A couple of projects that we've been on have the best water recycling um, units connected to their big multi-residential sites. But the problem is the rooftops that don't have plant life up there, they just have whatever the roof surface is, is capturing a hell of a lot of dust. And I mean, you know, I don't know, wheelbarrows, tons, metres of, of dust, depending on the on the building size itself. But that's getting captured, taken down into the water filtration and blocking these filters that are set up to not be able to cope, firstly, with the amount of dust coming through, clogging mm. up. And, and we're finding then that the maintenance on um, these water treatments that we're using back for irrigation again um, are having to be maintained more than what they were expected. So, you know, there's a benefit of a green roof. You know, filter out those dust particles before they then filter through back into, um, into the water catchment. Yeah, brilliant. So when you say it's filtering, it, it literally is like dust particles touch the leaves and then get stuck there and then they probably drop off down to the soil, right? Is that how yeah, it works? Yeah, correct. Or, you know, or, or they're settling in the growing media and they're just being, you know, stored there, but they're not going directly from the roof mm. material to the gutter and then straight down into that catchment, um, mm. catchment tanks and then having to go through the filtration system. Yeah, because what else happens? So someone steps up on the roof with a big blower vacuum and just blows it all down onto the ground, right? Yeah, that's the alternative. Exactly, hundred percent. There's a there's a project we're working on at the moment where we're uh, we're consulting, and it's a big multi development site, but they're building another two other big multi development sites right next door. So all the construction dust is what's building up on the roof of the finished building and blocking the fil- <laughs> uh, blocking the filters and the and just just causing the system to work as efficiently as it should be. Yeah, that is not what we want. No. Would there be 
other benefits from green infrastructure that can sort of, you know, maybe might be outside of the box of what people might be thinking when they think about plants in urban areas? Oh, look, again, where do we, where do we start? Let, you know what, let's go over to the school, um, uh, the schools where I work a lot in and, and integrate greenery. Let's think about the benefits of plants in what has always been a very sterile environment with schools. You know, you know a lot of concrete, a lot of bitumen, a lot of mm. easy to clean surfaces. Classrooms would have small windows. Well, the schools that we've been working with, we're, we're removing those windows so the students can look out onto greenery. We're opening classrooms so greenery and the outdoors can be invited in or students invited out to learn inside um, uh, outdoor uh, education setups, gardens, um, environments. And the, the benefits that plants are doing in just greening school infrastructure is massive and it's, and it's helping a lot of students cope. It's a coping mechanism, especially with a lot of students have got some learning difficulties. And uh, Dr. Kate Neal and myself have worked a lot uh, in researching the benefits of of some of these students that have have just needed to be around plants for for personal reasons to help them to help them cope while they're being at school to help them with their learning. Uh, so you know th- that that one to me is one of my passions. I, I love the the therapeutic benefits of what plants are doing. And hey, I'd rather a, a school that is ninety nine percent green um, than what we used to see, and that was ninety nine percent covered in concrete. Mm. absolutely agree so it helps kids learn it helps kids have fun when they're learning you know a lot of these behavioral issues maybe they're just not getting outside and putting their hands in the dirt enough they're not they're not exactly and we're we're running programs to have students via their curriculum um, to be involved more in the gardens and you know we're, we're lucky that some of these schools are really investing into into nature um, based solutions throughout their schools and curriculum. But we, we put in one of the schools, we put in a 60 square metre green wall in their study hall. And the idea behind it wasn't just to be a beautiful backdrop, but it was for them to just feel relaxed while doing exams. Um, the funny thing was, though, that the, the, the department um, of education, when they came through, said, oh, we're not too much of a fan of this greenery in this exam room. And we think it smells a little bit, you know, damp. Mm. Um, just smells like the outdoors. And we said, well, it's kind of meant to. It's meant to evoke, you know, that relaxation of being sitting out in a the park. These, these kids are doing some, you know, in some cases stressful exams. And some of them are really not coping well. So uh, we, we talk about, um, you know, nature restoration therapy and, and, and the ability to look at nature and just feel a bit more calm and, allow your concentration to continue or just have that break when you need it. And I've had students tell me how much they just love looking at the wall and calming themselves down before they get back into their exam. Now, that's feedback we need to hear. Uh, and, and then Absolutely. If it's given them 1% or 2% little bit more of a gain, so be it. It's, it's a great way for students to uh, go into their year 11 and 12 exams. Absolutely. I mean, if they're telling you that they're enjoying it, that in itself is enough of a means to, like, it's not just a means to an end, right? Our happiness actually matters. Yeah, it does. It does. I, I, I still remember one comment from one of my students and he said to me, he goes, he goes, if you tell me I only need to look at that for about 45 seconds or 60 seconds to get some benefits, he goes, I'm going to look at it double as long. 
And I said, double as long? He goes, yeah, triple as long. And I said, you know what? You do it as long as you feel you need to. I said, even go up and touch the wall. And a lot of the students really, to be introduced and invited up to touch a green wall, they almost felt, I don't know, it was it was a reluctance. It was like, we don't want to break it. And I said, you're not going to break it. It's, it's mm. a plant. It's, it's, it's nature. Haven't you touched greenery? Haven't you walked past and brushed your hand past a shrub or a, a tree? And a lot of them hadn't taken that time to do it. So to do it on a green wall, they felt that they were potentially going to break it. it uh, yeah. It was sad, but it was nice to, it was nice to see them engage with it once they actually realized they, they weren't going to damage the plants. Mm. Mm. Yeah, probably the first time they've been told in their life, no, you can touch that because I think a lot of the time when I'm out and about and I see kids and their parents and I guess probably teacher the same when I was a kid, don't touch that, don't touch that, don't touch that. Yeah, it is. No, it's exactly right. You've only got to look at, I guess, some of these kids growing up in their houses and the size of the houses now and the, the little amount of garden that they've got. And in most cases, you know, I ask a lot of, I, I do a bit of teaching work, um, and I asked my students, you know, do you get out and mow the lawn? They said, no, no, we, we, mum and dad have someone come and do it for us. So mm. there isn't that ability to go out there and grow their vegetables or, you know, mow the lawn or prune back a plant and, you know, maybe not make a great job of it, but still get out there and actually integrate with that, that nature and see, you know, it's not as fragile as um, they were worried about. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and you break a leaf, yeah, grows back a lot of the time. Might not look great for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, but it'll grow back a lot of the time unless you don't, unless you kill it. Yeah, correct. <laughs> Going back to the urban sort of things, like, like let's say someone like me, right? So I live in an, in an apartment. I've got a small courtyard where I grow some veggies, but nowhere to take my shoes off and run in the grass. Whereas you know, a couple of hundred meters down the road, because we live in Melbourne, we're very blessed. Mm. So I, I walk a couple hundred meters down the road one way and I get to one park and I can take my shoes off and, you know, sort of have a coffee and touch some trees with my wife, which is something I really like to do. I, I actually like walking past trees and physically touching them. Mm. Like you said, like I'm a big kid and I still like doing that. Um, but you just really cannot replace being able to take your shoes off and, you know, sit or run through the grass. It's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, the there's a lot of studies going on at the moment with children growing up in apartments. Um, and we, we, especially in Melbourne, you're right, we, we're seeing a lot of apartment buildings um, being constructed, uh, a lot of them occupied by families, a lot of them with small um, planters or small small balconies. Mm. I think the thing we need to try and work out is going back to a design Get, go back to the start and work out how much open space should we be providing for these um, these apartment blocks, these multi-residential sites, because the, not just the children, but everybody has to get outside and, and embrace and touch and, like you said, take your shoes off and walk on the lawn. Some of the big companies at the moment, the Mervex and Lend Leases and Frasers, and they're putting in big open spaces. And, and it's working. It's giving people the opportunity to, if they don't, at, in their own apartment, uh, to have greenery, to go down and be amongst it in some open space. The thing that I'm seeing a lot at the moment with the multi-residential sites is, is the planter boxes built into each balcony, and I think that's a great inclusion. Um, mm-hmm. Even if it's not managed and owned by 
resident or that unit apartment owner, it's still managed by the uh, the body corporate, but it's it's an asset to both the the, the residents living there and the and and the building itself. So I, I go back to yeah, you know, I think it's the um, the one in Milan, and I, I the, the name the name is is lost at the moment. Um, but he's the architect has put trees and plants all through the exterior of that building. Now, they're not part of the actual apartment, but every apartment looks out onto them. Now, that's where we're going to be able to integrate nature into these apartment buildings. So you can open your window and know that there's a tree or a plant right there or you can touch it or, you know, you can go down to a maybe the second story that's been dedicated to an open garden space or a rooftop. That's what we need to integrate more, integrate more levels of greenery into our buildings. Um, I know throughout Asia they're doing some fantastic work in in dedicating, like, complete levels to uh, outdoor spaces. So, yeah, I think it's a a problem, uh, especially with families that are growing up and kids aren't getting that space to use. But let's let's hope we go back and we, we design well from the start. Completely agree. So, Michael, what role does plant selection play? Like, can we just put any old plant anywhere and sort of expect to get these green infrastructure benefits? Or do we need to think a little bit more about what we're putting where? We need to think a lot. Um, we're, we're, we're embracing a warmer climate. We're embracing hotter cities. And our now traditional plant palettes that we've used in our gardens and landscapes in residential and commercial backyards and front yards sometimes aren't going to be up to the challenge uh you, you you're looking at if it's a raised planter box you li- you're looking at an environment that isn't natural you are potentially surrounded by concrete um drainage cells that have set up just to remove water away uh, you've got the ability to have these garden beds fail. So we've got to have plants that we know are tried and tested. And the, and the work's going on around, especially with the University of Melbourne, uh, the Green Infrastructure uh, Research Group out there, are uh, great for the work that they're doing with uh, plants on green roofs and green walls. I know RMIT, their urban greening department, are doing some really, really great studies. Uh, which plant where? from Macquarie University and Western Sydney University are doing, they're doing the hard work for us so we can then work out what plants um, are going to work. And and you've got to remember some of these city uh, temperatures, they're not decreasing overnight. That stored heat in the building is keeping a constant temperature and those plants are reacting differently too. So whether it be a, a windy alleyway where the plants receive nothing but, you know, wind and no sun, We've got to know our plants and we've, we, we need to have a good horticultural understanding of what's going to survive and what's going to uh, you know, still be there in 10, 20, 30 years on. It's hard, it's hard, really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Ben Seamark said something on the show recently that really blew my mind. He said that it takes 30 years for a tree to become carbon neutral. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> and, uh, and it is interesting and you think about the trees that we're putting into these built environments, um, they're really going in, you know, they're not struggling, but they're going in and they're going to have to work hard. And 30 years on, I'd like to see them still there too because I want them to be shading those streets. Um, 
and I, you know, I might be jumping a little bit beyond the, the plant palette selection, but you think of a tree that's been growing for 30 years, is that just providing shade? No, it's providing a lot more and it's providing protection to the asset, being the footpath and the road. So I think we need mm-hmm. to value these these assets that we're putting in. And tree being one of them, I want to see it there in 30 years. I don't want to see it being replaced after two to five years because it failed. Absolutely not. Something that a few people have mentioned as well is that we need to be planning for the trees that are going to thrive in the future conditions. So the plants that thrive today may not be the ones that thrive after the effects of climate change have started to take a hold. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that is correct. And uh, go back a step and think about the tree that was planted in, you know, the main street of the city, only to have a new building go up five years later and completely shadow it. Um, Mm. or even in some cases, and we've seen a lot of this happen, where a building has been put up and the reflective glass has then given that, uh, that, that plant or that, that tree far too much light um, when it wasn't actually you know, selected for that, uh, that environment mm. at the time. So, yeah, we've got a lot of things yeah. to consider. It's, it's, it's a difficult world, the world of green infrastructure, and I think I'm, I touched on it in the, in the definition. It's really, really a multidisciplinary industry. And uh, it brings together so many disciplines, but we, we need to, and we are doing it, work together more and work together closely, bring in the experts and work out mm-hmm. a real true plan. Michael, I'd like to speak to you about education and how people can get involved in this sector shortly. But before we get there, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Firstly, did you want to speak on the Growing Green Guide? Yeah, look, the- you know, you touched before on on plant resources. You know, what is going to work? How do we know um, what's going to be suitable and what's going to thrive? Before we do any of the plant selection, we actually need to know what it is we're building and how we're building it, whether it be a green roof or a green wall or a raised planter or a planter on structure. And the Growing Green Guide was put together by City of Melbourne, University of Melbourne, and, and a few other stakeholders, and I apologise, I don't have them all in front of me, but it was a guide put together by industry experts on best practices um, and guidelines of building uh, green infrastructure, whether it be green facades, uh, green roofs. We get that right. The building component, the design, we can then start working out how we're going to make these plants thrive in these in these positions. So in these conditions, but the the growing green guide, and you can download that. It's a free free um, uh, guideline booklet by the City of Melbourne. They're about to update it, I'm led to believe. But that is a really, really that's like that's like our bible. It's a go to book. It's a great mm-hmm. one. There will be a link in the show notes for anybody who'd like to download that for free. So how about the Green Infrastructure Committee of Practice? Uh, yes, that's our, uh, that's our little pet project at the moment. Um, I think it was back in 2019, uh, there was about 30 of us in the industry that got together and with uh, Hort Innovations and University of uh, New South Wales and, and University of Melbourne, and we created the roadmap for green roofs, walls, facades in Australia's urban landscapes and it was a 2020-2030 document and and what it did was it it allowed us as the industry to map out where we need to go and what we need to do over the next 10 years and 
one of it was put together a, an organisation or a network that could represent the, the industry, the people working in it, give guidance to people coming into the industry, but also give guidance to anybody that needed to understand what is green infrastructure, how do I put it into my built environment, whether it be my office, my, my new building, my new development. So we, we, we're hoping that very shortly we'll, um, we'll have an organisation up and running. Uh, we're in the, in the uh, I guess, the, the start of even just getting a name together, getting a constitution. But, yeah, watch this space. And, and Daniel, I'll, I'll keep you informed on this, but it, I, I would hope to think in the next six months we've got this, uh, this network, this industry organisation up and running and, uh, and, and, and being a wealth of information um, for everybody to read. Might be another opportunity for a new episode. I, I would hope so because, look, at the moment, I, I, other than other than a lot of behind the scenes, which I don't want to bore your audience with, we are uh, we're, we're we're moving well, but it is going to be it's going to be the go to industry organisation. So we're we're looking forward to it. We're pretty excited. Wonderful. We need some big thinkers, Michael. We do. There's lots of them there. We get them all together, and mm. we get them all thinking. And you know what? Uh, the community benefits, and everybody benefits because we've got the best brains uh, putting all this together. agree, mate. So, Michael, what about jargon? Like, how do you feel about jargon? Should we, like, consistently be using the same words? Should we allow language to develop? Do we need to be sceptical of marketers who are always trying to come up with the next new buzz term? What are your thoughts on jargon? Uh, Yeah, green infrastructure, the term, is one that we're sticking with. There's... There's terminology, living infrastructure, living architecture. Um, I don't know. We, we've, we've talked at length about this, and I know there are some, some colleagues of ours uh, that are working with us at um, the Green Infrastructure Community of Practice that are working on terminology to ensure that we keep the right terminology. Um, if I'm going to talk about a green wall, I'll talk about a green wall. I'm not going to call it a living wall um, mm. or a vertical wall. I want to be able to keep the same terminology so we're not getting lost. It is, it is a difficult one because there are going to be marketing terms. Um, living infrastructure has been one that is getting thrown around a little bit. But, yeah, I think I think watch this space. I think what we'll see is, especially here in Australia, we will try and define some terms that we will keep um, and use as a uniform, I guess, language in this space. The marketing's a big concern because I don't want to see it lost in in someone's glossy marketing uh, catalogs. Mm. But look, nature-based solutions is a word, uh, is a term, sorry, that we are throwing around a lot, and it it is it's nature-based and it's a solution and it's it's really encompassing those green infrastructure uh, elements that I talked about before. You know, the green walls, the, the the roof gardens, and one thing I didn't talk about was urban farms. You know, that that should also be included. Absolutely. Mm. So, yes, yeah, terminology, let's watch this space. Hmm. So just stick with green wall. Everyone who's listening, green wall is the term <laughs> we're using. <laughs> forget vertical garden, forget living wall. <laughs> Look, as long as everybody's doing the right thing and, and, and wanting to integrate it, I, I'm happy for them to call it whatever they want at the moment as long as it's all positive <laughs> and beneficial. Absolutely. So, Michael, I'm guessing that there's probably at least – a few people who are listening right now thinking like, oh, gee, green infrastructure, what an exciting place to work. Like how, how does someone get into this field? Is there like a diploma of green infrastructure that someone can take? Yeah, 
this is the problem we're having at the moment. I I know when I started in horticulture 30 years ago, I I loved plants. I've always loved plants. I've, I've loved being around them, working with them, growing them, killing them in, in some cases. Um, <laughs> uh, but I've also loved construction. And I, I remember when I, I started TAFE, Certificate for TAFE back at Burnley College and Someone said to me, oh, you're a plants man or you're a construction man? I said, I'm actually both. And mm-hmm. they said, no, you're not. You, you can't be both. I said, I actually am. I, <laughs> I, I love building, but I love plants. And, and it was very difficult. Um, I don't know. There was a stigma around guys liking plants. And I just went, you know, I don't care. I'm going to build. I'm going to love my plants. I'm going to nurture my plants. And, and as my time went on and I – went through landscape construction. I did my diploma and degree out at, um, at a Burnley in plant science. I got to see the two really blending well together. Then, I don't know, 15 years ago, I, I started seeing cities green and, and uh, the green infrastructure movement happening more overseas than here, and I, I loved it. I went, this is me. This is, this is exactly what mm-hmm. I want to do, Put, putting plants into the built environment. To, to get back to your question, our education and where we go is going to be a tough one because this is a multidisciplinary um, industry. I come from 30 years of construction knowledge, irrigation knowledge, plant knowledge, um, and it allows me to integrate my skills together. But how do you teach that? And how do you teach that without it being a 10-year course? <laughs> so the... Um, Skills Impact, we worked, there was a, quite a few of us that worked alongside Skills Impact putting together a curriculum um, that could then be put out to the industry, so TAFE, the RTOs, to, um, to, to integrate it into their teaching. And, and we came up with the three sectors, you know, the, the planning and designing and the construction and then the maintaining. Mm. But, again, the the TAFE teachers and the, and the educators were saying, even this is very hard for us to, to teach. It's a, it's a big, big, big component. We don't think we can deliver it in its full capacity. So we, we were able to come up with three skill sets, and you know, one was being the plan and design roof gardens, vertical gardens, and, and green facades. And here, how's that? I said the vertical gardens too. I say green walls. We say vertical <laughs> gardens. Um, the other one was construct uh, the same. And the other one was then maintain. Now, that's a big, big um, set of skill sets. It hasn't been, in my knowledge to date, taken on yet by the TAFEs. Uh, sections of it are being implemented through uh, their teachings, so not the full skill sets but elements of it. Um, for, for some of us professionals that have worked in the industry for a while, um, University of Melbourne, ran the specialist certificate in green roofs and walls uh, and that was at a kind of a post-grad master's level um, and that was fantastic. But I really, really think we need to get training, educating and training uh, people coming into this industry because very, very soon we're going to want to mandate greenery into buildings, built environments, retrofitting, you name it. And we're not going to have the workforce or the skilled workforce to be able to do it. We barely have the landscape workforce, man. Yeah, yeah, correct. And look, I know at the moment all all my training for my staff is done in house. It's done by me. Um, 
I would love to be able to have a pool of uh, qualified and, and educated staff to be able to pick from. But at the moment, what we're doing is we're finding people have the passion, uh, which is fantastic because I want the passion. We can then train that um, that that uh, that person and, and harness that passion. So, yeah, we 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 do need that. Like you said, we. We've got a current workforce of landscape and gardeners that is starting to dwindle. We need more of them. Um, but wow, we're going to have we're going to have a lot of green infrastructure installations around that um, I don't think we're going to have the uh, the trained personnel to be able to uh, keep up with it. It's going to be tricky. I hope people are listening. So, Michael, what? advice would you give someone who's listening to this now and they're like look in the next five or ten years i want to be positioning myself to take advantage of this green infrastructure boom what would you tell them well firstly let's hope that the the training facility is going to implement some of this and i I believe they will um they will soon i would also say to them start researching and understanding uh what it is to work in in green infrastructure and, and work around other professionals because remember you don't go into this knowing everything you go into this knowing your specialized skill whether it be horticulture landscape irrigation uh design um and just just take on as much as you can again we're putting together our our green infrastructure uh network um which will be the go-to organization will be the people that we would expect um you know, the, the the newcomers to the industry to come and see and talk to. So we want to be the resource library where we go to RMIT and Melbourne University and say, hey, give us all your, you know, your research and information. We'll store it here as a one-stop shop for people to understand more about. But I'd like to see this brought in as a both a, a certificate three all the way through to a degree level uh, training. Mm. And you'd call it green infrastructure, a certificate in green infrastructure, or would it be green infrastructure landscape design? Um, no, I, uh, again, this this spent uh, we spent hours just trying to even work out what level to bring this in and what to call it. Yeah. So, um, again, you know, if 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 you had engineering background and you wanted to get into green infrastructure, geez, you'd be valued, and 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 engineers yeah. are, but just as much as a landscape designer would be just as much as a maintenance um, personnel would be. So, mm. yeah, where do you start and where do you actually integrate it maybe through building qualifications as well as horticultural qualifications? Right. So because, you know, if you're building green roofs and green walls and green facades, you need to be a qualified builder or a registered builder. So should yeah. we be implementing some of that training into their um skill set as well one thing's for sure michael it's not going to be one person who does this it's going to be very much a collaborative um affair isn't it it is yeah look to give you an example the way we would we would work now on any project is we sit with the architect we sit with the landscape architect we sit with an engineer we sit with a uh a waterproofing firm a drainage firm a construction company um the horticulturist uh, the landscape construction company, we would bring in the asset owner. Now, that's a lot of parties at the table, but to have them there at the table at the start of a project and not at the end, um, that's what needs to be done. Mm. We need to pull <laughs> together the resources because, unfortunately, we get to the end of the project and the asset owner receives their green roof. 
and they know nothing about the process of how it was built, how to maintain it, how to manage it, or let alone the cost that's going to go on with it, the ongoing cost. So, yeah, yeah, to have everybody at the table at the start and bringing their own expertise, that's what we need. Um, Look, that actually brings me on to a good one. There's a a document that we put together together with Melbourne Union Hort Innovations, and uh, it was the maintenance guidelines for Australian green roots. Now, we want to see more of those documents out there because that's what's going to help us all, the industry, um, the installers, the the designers. It'll allow us to be all on the one page, and that's where I think uh, we're, we're, we're getting better at, but we have been making for a while. Mm. I think it's the same in all of horticulture, Michael. I think that we're all better as a team. So as a maintenance professional, I, I'm not a designer, but I like to listen to designers because they know a lot about what they're talking about. And then that just helps me when the client asks me a question, I've got something to tell them. Or, you know, if I have to replace a plant, now that I've been listening to designers, I know, well, actually, I wouldn't put that one there. I'd put this one here. The designers need to hear you say that too. Yeah, and because they need to know, okay, so don't put a pedestrian gate on the acreage because we need to get a ride-on mower through there. Exactly. And and the thing with green <laughs> infrastructure is we've got to remember the architects are really great at creating beautiful-looking buildings, uh, but a lot of the time they might need a little bit of assistance on working out where to put greenery. Maybe that comes from the maintenance contractor who has to say, hey, I've got to get up there and do that. Um mm. How can I access that or how do I make that actually safe for my staff to get up there and maintain it or can it be maintained? Uh, you know, that's, that's, I, I did a talk not long ago for Melbourne Uni and City of Melbourne on designing with maintenance in mind and it was based around green infrastructure and we're, we're popping green infrastructure in everywhere but not thinking about uh, the downfalls of having it when the maintenance companies need to come in and actually find a solution mm. uh, and a costly, you know, it's, it's got to be, it's got to be something that the, the, the end asset owner can afford to have done because the first mm. thing they'll do is they'll scrap it out of the budget and we lose that asset. Yeah. And as a maintenance professional, I'd like you to keep it as simple as possible, please. Like don't expect us to be geniuses. We're not, we're maintenance professionals. Like keep it simple for us, please. Yeah. But also I think, you know, maintenance professionals are going to evolve. Urban horticulture is evolving. Maintenance will evolve. Um, I know. I know my other company, my maintenance firm now that they all work at heights. You know, a lot of their work is off the ground. It's hanging on the edge of buildings, and and you have only got to look at the works of say Jungle Fire and Fighter Green, who are doing some really really massive work out there, and they've got. You know, their, their staff are, are all height trained and rope rope access trained. Now, they're, they're horticulturists that back in the day were feet on the ground. So we've, we're all evolving. We are all evolving with urban horticulture. Love to see it. I think that's an attractive job for a lot of kids in high school. Like I can imagine me as a high schooler, I would have loved that job. I wish I had have learned about arboriculture for the same reason because I would have been up there climbing if I hadn't known it was an option. Well, they were, the, you know, all the arbs. The arb teams, they were the ones that were getting off the ground and all of us were looking down there in awe saying, God, look at them hanging around in those trees. And, uh, you know, there's something about being up there in the tree canopy. Um, 
mind you, there's also something about hanging off the edge of a building too. But um, <laughs> look, yeah, we, we are evolving. And, and I know that with the work that I'm doing with my students, I, I deliver Certificate to Horticulture for Year 11s and 12s who are looking for career pathways. I'm, I'm sneaking in urban horticulture and um, green infrastructure into my teachings and they're excited. You know, not in a million years would they ever have thought that gardens would be growing in some of the areas gardens are growing in our cities. So, you know, we, we've got the interest. We've definitely got the interest and, and I know we'll have the workforce. Uh, we just need to, to start creating that pool of wealth, of information wealth and um, expertise now. So we've got it there for when, you know, cities are, are going to mandate greenery, which I hope very shortly. Yeah, that's exciting times, Michael. Mm, it is. So can you tell us? You are you are the president of the Australian Institute of Horticulture, and I'm a member as well. So we're probably biased, but Michael, why should somebody join the Australian Institute of Horticulture as a member? Why should they involve themselves with any organisation? More to the point, and it's to be around like-minded professionals, to learn, to network. Um, you know, Daniel, you and you and myself, we we met via the organisation and. Um, at the numerous networking events, whether they be conferences or uh, forums or, or networking catch-ups, how good is it to be around other professionals and hear mm. what other people are doing? And sometimes just to go, oh, you know what, this, this person's having the same problems I'm having or this person has the same goals and aspirations as I'm having as well. And, you know, to feel comfortable in, in maybe connecting with others to assist in your direction or, or looking towards um, the mentoring process of finding someone who's been in the industry for a long time. I know with AIH, we offer a mentoring service so we can, we can assist people coming into the industry of any age on, you know, the pros, the cons, the pitfalls, the, the benefits of and maybe you know, save them some of the some of the grief or give them a better pathway that maybe we didn't have when we were starting. So organisations are wonderful things. Um, they take time. They take time to obviously have to attend events. But, you know, after a while, it's um, it's a catching up with friends, isn't it? You know, Daniel, when you Absolutely. and I catch up with each other, we, we, we have a great chat, chat about sometimes everything bar horticulture, but it's still that networking. <laughs> So it's great, yeah. No, I, I would welcome anyone and, and, again, welcome any communication if people did have questions about uh, joining AIH or just, like I said, joining uh, organisations in general. I love that, Michael. And I think as well it's not just the friendship and the connections and that. Like that's great, but also like how about opportunities, mate? So like let's say like if I go down to the pub and I meet a landscaper, they're of they're a certain type of landscaper, but if I go to the Australian Institute of Horticulture to meet a landscaper, I know that I'm getting someone who's really passionate about the industry because they're actually investing in their professional development. Yeah, correct. And, and look, I think the, the, the great thing about Australian Institute of Horticulture is that we we are representing horticulturists. So, you know, horticulturists could be a landscape architect, a landscape designer, a landscape mm. construction. Um, uh, personnel. It could be a nursery man or woman. It, it's the horticulture is the umbrella. What we do, our niche market under that, all all encompasses horticulture somewhere in amongst it. So, you know, we we 
we try and partner with as many other organisations as we can. So when we do have events, like you said, you know, whether it be um, us and Ayla, uh, you know, you, you might come to a function and before you know it, you've met a couple of landscape architects who you feel might be perfect um, to network with as much as they might see, oh, wow, this is a personnel uh, of, of potential maintenance contractors or you know, landscape construction people I want to work with. So, I th- yeah, I think, I think the days of just being an organisation and not branching out um, are long gone. I think we're finding the power of all being together uh, has been, has been yeah, beneficial to all our members. Absolutely agree. And how valuable is that little AIH member in your email signature? Yeah, correct. Oh, look, and you know what? It just shows. You, it shows. It shows that you've done the work, and it shows that you've you've been accredited with yeah that that um, MAIH member of Australian Institute of Horticulture, and it shows that you're dedicated to your profession, and and and, and that's what we want to do. We're trying our best to represent professional horticulturists out there, um, and if you can use it as a marketing tool at your end, then that's fantastic. Mm, brilliant. Michael, we've come to the end of the episode and there's one question I always like to ask my guests. Mm. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Is there? Um, just get out there and be a part of it. Be a part of plants. Um, harness the power of plants. We've, we've only touched on the power of nature and plants. Um, be amongst it. Embrace what's going on with urban horticulture green infrastructure, um, yeah, just do your best to, to learn, uh, embrace and, and network. Network, find out what other people are doing because uh, like we said before, you know, working together is a powerful thing. But be amongst it. Enjoy it. Just get amongst it. Touch trees. Put your hands in the soil. And if you're a professional, you are living a blessed life because I think a lot of people are really jealous of us gardeners, mate. I think so. I think so. We're we're all uh, we're all gardeners at heart, aren't we? Whether we're building or we're not, we're uh, we're building for the cause of integrating more greenery into our environment. So, oh, and nurturing it. Um, so bring it on. I love it. Love it. Cheers, mate. Thanks for a great episode. Fantastic. Thanks, Daniel. Have a think about your career and where you'd like to go. Whether you're working in construction, design, admin project management, or you're a maintenance gardener like me, you've accumulated some skills over the years. Maybe you could bring those skills to the green infrastructure space. Hortpeople.com is the job board for the green industry. Check out the green infrastructure job category and upload a resume for free. Follow the links in the show notes to the AIH website, their LinkedIn, and upcoming events. Get amongst our industry.